morning. Uh, I am not Penny. My name is Matt Trent. Uh, I'm a member here at Christ the King, and uh, I'm a seminary student, so I uh, have the privilege of coming up here and preaching our last sermon from our series of Summer in the Psalms. Um, since it is the last one, and since we are in baseball season, uh, I'm hoping I can kind of close this one out like a good relief pitcher, um, hopefully close the game and um, be okay and not blow it. <clears throat> But as we've been studying through the Psalms over the summer, we've seen that there's a wide variety of emotions. Uh, we've, we've gone through Psalms of lament. We've seen some of thanksgiving, and we've seen some of praise. But this morning, we're actually going to come to a section from the book of Psalms that we haven't addressed yet this summer. Um, and what this section is, it's called a Psalm of Ascents. It goes from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And I want to give you a little illustration to kind of, kind of wrap your head around what's going on in this Psalm of Ascent. So if you all think about a particular destination, uh, something that you enjoy traveling to, maybe once a year, every couple months, maybe every so many years. So for some of you, it's going to be uh, a beach vacation or <clears throat> a vacation to the mountains. Maybe for others, um, a getaway at the lake that you do with some friends um, every, every couple months or maybe a couple times a year. Uh, maybe a few of you um, really look forward to a special sporting event that you go to um, maybe a couple times a year, maybe a football game or something like that. I always remember as a child my great excitement when we would go to the beach. So I remember the buildup when mom and dad said, all right, let's go ahead and we're going we're gonna to pack the car up we're going to get ready for the beach. And so we would, we would pack the car up, we would get ready for the beach, and then that feeling of sheer excitement when the wheels started to back out of the driveway, right? We know, all right, now it's time to go to the beach. And as, as we would travel to the beach, I would think about all the fun that I've had at the beach in the past, all the fun things that I'd done, running around the beach, playing the waves, playing in the pool, looking for shark teeth, all that stuff. But the turning point of our trip was always Rockingham, North Carolina. We would always stop at Sonic, and I knew when we got to Rockingham, North Carolina, we were on our way down towards the beach, towards Myrtle Beach area. And as we got closer and we got stuck in Conway, I would continue to get excited, thinking about the expectation, knowing how fun it was going to be that I was going to be able to run on the beach and do all the things that I couldn't do. I'm sure all of you all can probably think of something in your lives that you have looked forward to with great excitement like that. And the Psalms of Ascent, in a way, are kind of like that. So we're dealing with a group of people that are singing these psalms as they are traveling from their villages and towns um, for, for up to Jerusalem for one of the, the three festivals, the feast that the Jews were called um, to go up to. So God commanded them to do that in Exodus. So as they would find out that they were going to be traveling, they would, they would have joy. They would sing these psalms. Many of them think that they started in Psalm 120 and, and just continued to sing all the way up through Psalm 134. And Psalm 122, many people think that they sung as they were actually entering into the city. And so when we think of an ascent, we're going up. And Jerusalem, geographically, was the highest point. So they would ascend upward towards Jerusalem. But not only would they ascend towards Jerusalem, as they came up towards Jerusalem, their hearts would ascend towards the Lord in joy and excitement 
to go and enter into the presence of God where he dwelt in Jerusalem and to worship him at the festivals, at the feasts, and going to worship him in the temple. So that's kind of a little bit of a background as to a psalm of ascent and what's going on here. Um, Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll read our text. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning that uh, you've gathered us together. Um, Although we've been scattered and we've been in different places, both physically and mentally, um, we thank you for bringing us in, uh, that you, you want us to come and worship you. We pray that our worship would be pleasing to you, that we would be able to give you all of our affections, our emotions, and praise and thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done. And I pray as we read your word and as we hear from it, God, that you would um, speak your truth rooted in the scriptures. Uh, Lord, uh, sanctify us by your truth, Lord, because your word is truth. In Christ's holy name, amen. Okay, so we're going to read from Psalm 122, the entire chapter. It's nine verses. If you could follow along with me in your Bible or your order of worship. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last month, a trusted news source published a list of the greatest worship songs of all time. Um, three of the most popular ones were Everything is Awesome by the Le- in the Lego movie. Another was Happy by Pharrell Williams. And then the third was Beautiful by Christina Aguilera. These songs were chosen, the article said, because they perfectly capture the essence and worth of the worshiper, which is what worship is all about, right? The chorus of beautiful states, I am beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't bring me down. I am beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can't bring me down. Oh, no. So don't you bring me down today. So I'm sure you all are laughing. Um, This is is obviously Christian satire. This uh, was an article from the Babylon Bee. um, But the truth is, Satire usually will capture the essence of reality, right? That's why people have good satire. And I think when we, when we think this through, we have a culture that's very egocentric. We're, we're very focused on instant gratification. If you want to know something, you Google it and you look it up on Wikipedia. You don't have to go pull out an encyclopedia. If you want to buy something and they don't have it, you just order it on Amazon. It's at your door in two days. There's no more blockbuster videos, but... You don't have to go out and rent movies anymore. You can have them immediately in your house. You can stream them. So these are all not necessarily bad things, but they're aspects of our culture which tend to influence the way um, we think about things. It certainly can affect how we view worshiping the Lord. I think if we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, a lot of Christians, 
we come to worship um, not necessarily to go and, and turn all of our affections and focus on the Lord, but a lot of times we look at it to see what we can get out of it, right? Um, I really need a good life application today, or, and hopefully I will have some today, <laughs> um, um, but I really need a great emotional high or feeling, or I really want to sing some songs that really get me jacked up, or I really need a pick-me-up for the week. These things aren't necessarily bad. They're very good. These are gifts that the Lord gives us in worship. But the issue with worship is, is one of, of kind of, what, if, what is our motivation? Why do we want to go and seek the Lord? What is our attitude when we go in to worship the Lord? Are we coming to worship and, and place our focus and trust in the Lord? Are we to praise him because of what he's done, because of who he is in his character? It's, it's really a great challenge because we all bring different things to the table. Some of us are weary from the week. Some of us have gone through times of sorrow and difficulty. Um, it's very difficult for some of us to have a great joy when we are um, coming into the house of the Lord. It's a challenge. There may be some of you here today who are just now checking out Christianity, and uh, you're just trying to learn to see what we're all about. And hopefully today, along with the, the rest of the people here that trust in the Lord, we'll have some good idea of what Christian worship is supposed to, to look like in a way. We, we have some great examples here um, from the psalm. And we have some great principles that show us God honoring worship. Our first one, let's look at verse 1. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Um, verse 1 tells us that the psalmist was glad. The psalmist rejoiced. They were excited when they were told it was time to go to the house of the Lord. His heart filled with gladness at the thought of going up to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God and to worship him. Do you guys remember in Luke 2 when Jesus was 12 years old and he and Mary and Joseph went up um, for one of the feasts up into Jerusalem? And upon leaving, um, Mary and Joseph were walking back with the group of people and they say, wait, where's, where's Jesus? We don't know where he is. And they freaked out. They went back. They found him in Jerusalem. And Mary goes up to Jesus and she says, why have you done this to us? And Jesus' response was, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus had to be in his father's house. And that was the goal of all the Israelites as well. They were to be in their father's house for worship. And we see great joy from the psalmist when he was en route to worship the Lord. Now, this, this psalm is um, it's attributed to David, that David wrote it, and I see no reason to dismiss David as, as the psalmist here. Um, but a lot of people don't know the context in which David wrote it. So we have David writing it, and then hundreds of years later, we have pilgrims scattered after the exile that are, that are singing it as they travel to Jerusalem for the feast. But a lot of people aren't sure exactly why David wrote it or the context. Some suggest that it could have to do with the situation with Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. I don't know if you guys remember this story. It's not very pleasant, so I won't go into the graphic details. But um, Absalom and Tamar were brother and sister. They had the same mom, and they were sons of David. And Amnon was also a son of David with a different uh, mother. And so there are all these people living in David's palace, 
and Amnon violated Tamar. And in retaliation, Absalom had um, Amnon put to death in front of other sons of David. Well, this led, one thing led to another. And then what ultimately happened is Absalom stands at the gates of Jerusalem and basically acts as a judge. When people would come into Jerusalem, Absalom stood at the gates, and when they would have disputes, he would come up and he would say, he would deal with the disputes. And so people would start to trust and, uh, and kind of believe in his rule. He was totally neglecting the rule of David. And people started to uh, come alongside Absalom. David left. He left Jerusalem. He fled Jerusalem, right? He was, he was the, the head of the kingly line that God had promised to establish only several chapters earlier in 2 Samuel. So he leaves, and, and the Levites come out, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built yet. They bring the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they say, do you want to bring this with you? He said, no, put it back in Jerusalem. That's where, that's where it belongs. That's where, that is the city of God. That is, is where he is to dwell. Can you imagine how David would have felt being basically kicked out by his own son from Jerusalem, right? He's the promised king. He's the, he's the man after God's own heart. He's the one that was supposed to try and build this, this temple for the Lord. And he's now gone. Imagine how he would feel as he walked back to Jerusalem, because we know he entered back in not long after that um, to take con back control of the city. Imagine how his heart would have felt as he ascended up to Jerusalem, as he saw the gates, how excited he would be to say, wow, let the excitement, the joy of going up into the house of the Lord. Think, think about the joy for him to come back as the king. So we can see how David would be joyous here in going into the house of the Lord to worship. But what about, what about the pilgrims? We have a group of people that are scattered after the exile. They're living in all of these villages. Um, they are, are, are following with what God's commands were to come up to these festivals three times a year. Imagine the joy that they would, feel, they would feel as they came up and joined with other brothers and sisters from the various tribes scattered amongst the nations to come and worship God at these great feasts. They would travel with joy with a tabernacle now set, fully constructed into the temple. The temple was set there. And they would have been spellbound at the overpowering and glorious sight of their arrival. And, and so I hammer this, these uh, images home because Jerusalem in this psalm really to us represents the church. It's easy for us to think, well, you know, if I was exiled and, and came back into this glorious city, I, I think I'd probably be a little bit more excited about going to church to worship the Lord. Or um, if I only went to church three times a year, like, like uh, these pilgrims went up to Jerusalem, I'm sure I would have a lot of joy too because I wouldn't be going as much. But sometimes for us as Christians, uh, worship just seems kind of ordinary. It just seems kind of bland to us. It's easier for us to look forward to other things, maybe uh, a date night or a hangout time with friends. Maybe we're really excited just about being done with work and being able to relax during the weekend. What about um, being excited for sporting events? I was a little convicted of this this week as I found myself going more and more excited for the week for the Virginia Tech football game. And, and I had to confront my, <laughs> confront my heart because 
my heart was ascending towards a Virginia Tech-West Virginia football game, which is tonight, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I was, I, was, I was convicted by that because it's just so easy for us to get excited about other things and not to be as excited about coming into the presence of the Lord and worshiping. And, and when, we look, when we look to ourselves, we find out that the things that we look most forward to usually re- reflect the things that we are most desirous of, the things that really have grasp on our hearts. Um, they reveal where we find our joy. But we also have really busy schedules, too. And sometimes our schedules are so busy, we have so much going on, that we just like, oh, wait, oh, wait, it's Sunday. <laughs> that happened quick. What happened Saturday? It's over. And we've, we've missed that joy and expectation of being able to go into the presence of the Lord. Can you all think of, of the last time that you honestly yearned to go into the house of the Lord and worship him early in the week? And then throughout the week, your heart just got more and more excited and joyous to come and worship him? Um, when I think about that, I'm, I'm certainly very convicted because it's a challenge. We just have so much going on in our lives and so much that we have to deal with. And we have, we have sorrow and difficulty and strife. And it's just we're pulled in a million different directions. And I think one of the reasons that we do struggle with that is our motivation for our joy. Why don't we look at verse 4. In verse 4, um, um, let's see, yep, there it is. <laughs> As was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The, the reason for worship is to give thanks. Not just in word, but in deed. It's what characterized the attitude of the Jewish pilgrims that were traveling to the feast. When they would travel, they would, and they would actually come into um, the city of Jerusalem and participate in these feasts, they wouldn't just remember God's mighty acts, they would act them out. That's, that was what part of it was. They would trust in, in his covenant faithfulness and remember all that he had done from, for them in the past. So even though there's lots of good things for us to look forward to on Sundays, like great fellowship, um, good music, life, applica- life application, our primary focus when we come to worship should be to give thanksgiving to God, to praise him. Let's, let's, let's think about it. He's our creator. He is our redeemer. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who lifts up our heads. He is the great I am. He is our reigning and mighty king standing on the throne, the power, position of authority. He is the one who faithfully brought his children out of darkness and into light. He is the one who forgave you. He is the one who gave you a new name. He is the one that adopted you in as a son or a daughter. Think of the ways that you have seen God work in your life. Think of the ways that you have seen him work in other people's lives. God calls us to place our attitudes, our affections, our attention on him. When we come to worship, he wants us to to give him an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. Every week at the end of our service, we always do the Lord's Supper. Did you guys know one of the common terms for the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, basically means thanksgiving. It's a time of thanksgiving. 
All right, that should be our attitude in worship throughout all of our elements that we do. We need to redirect our thinking and put him as the object of our worship. It's okay to come wanting great fellowship and all of these other things, but we need to place our attention and focus on him, praising him. But that also brings up another thing that we deal with is sometimes we don't really feel like praising God, right? Sometimes we don't feel energetic or excited. We may not be feeling it. Um, David would gently say, I don't care whether you feel like it or not, as it was decreed, give thanks to the name of the Lord. Right? <laughs> give thanks to the name of the Lord, despite your circumstances. And, and when we think about this, when we obey the, the command of God to praise him, to give him thanksgiving and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. The second aspect that we have here today in worship that we see is, is a united worship. We are to worship in unity with one another. When we think of the history of Israel, when we think of, of the church, the last thing we usually think about is unity, right? Think about David's time and the time of the prophets. In Luke, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. He said, calling Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The city of Jerusalem often seemed more like a city of division. But what we see in verses 3 and 4 is that the city itself is, is a bit of an architectural metaphor. It, it, it kind of it explains to us, in a way, what worship is. And Jerusalem was a city where the tribes would gather together, and as we see in verse 3, they were bound firmly together. All of, and what that means is all of its parts were united together. And if you were to go into Jerusalem and, and look at the architecture, look at the structure, look at the buildings, look at the temple, you would see all the pieces of masonry. They would fit compactly. And all the building stones, even though some were different sizes and shapes, would all be fitting properly. There weren't missing stones. There weren't any leftover pieces. There weren't any awkward gaps in the building. It was skillfully and masterfully built. And in a like manner, our worship mirrors the architecture. In worship, even though the tribes of Israel had external differences, they still functioned as a single people in harmonious relationship. So there was some sort of unity with the Jews. But how much more so of a unity do we have as New Covenant Christians? With the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the household of God, the physical temple, has been abolished. God has now made a way for all types of people to enter into direct fellowship with him. We are, as Peter wrote, we're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So like the pieces of stone that built the city of Jerusalem, that, that built up the temple itself, we, as a body of believers, we're each molded, we're shaped, we're placed where God sees fit. Even though we come from different places that were Coming out of various conditions, we're all seeking the same thing, to honor and glorify the Lord. He is the one who redeemed and renewed us, so he is 
do our praise. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, age groups, education levels. Maybe we have different sin problems. We have different baggage that we carry. But in worship, we're gathered together as a single whole. Our outer quarrels, our misunderstandings and differences are insignificant compared to the inner unity that God builds up when we worship him together. But we also have a greater unity as new covenant Christians because we stand under a different Davidic king than they did, right? We stand under the great reigning Lord who always issues righteous judgment. David failed his people time and time again, but Jesus will never fail us. Look at verse 5. David and those after him were given the throne of judgment so they could execute justice in their rule. But in, our, in the church today, we live under the authority of the most holy, the most righteous, the most just king who rules and reigns. We are bound firmly together as one body under our covenant head. We can trust in him. So what that means is all of our petty differences that we like to focus on that divide us as Christians shouldn't. Christ calls us to get out of our comfort zones and get into relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ that are different. Perhaps you need to reach out to somebody outside of your normal circles in this church. Ask yourself if you have avoided certain Christians just because they were a lot different from you and you didn't want to reach out to them because it was out of your comfort zone. Remember that we are united together in Christ. Our worship and our attitude towards each other should reflect the creativity and the diversity that God celebrates in bringing his people together. The last thing that we want to look at is um, that honoring worship should be characterized by a sense of hope. Three times in verses 6 through 9, David prays and pleads for peace in Jerusalem. The word shalom for peace doesn't necessarily mean only peace the way we understand it. It also includes caring for someone's welfare, someone's happiness. So not only was David praying for peace to be in Jerusalem, he cared about the well-being and the joy of the people of God. But has there ever been peace in Jerusalem? It's one of the most sought-after and fought-after places throughout the history of the world. What's even more interesting is the term Jerusalem can be translated as the city of peace or peaceful dwelling. That's kind of weird, huh? Because it certainly hasn't reflected that in what we see. David didn't see much peace, but he, but he prayed with a hope that one day there would be a peace. God's, God's people did experience a peace, though, right? Many years later. At Christ's death, peace was accomplished in a sense. Ephesians tells us that for now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
So through Christ's death on the cross, sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God and sinful people can be reconciled to sinful people. There's no more dividing walls of hostility between us. There's no more temple structure with its different levels of holiness. We are all on equal ground because Christ has made peace. We can worship with a hope that the great reconciler will continue to work in and through his church who has brought us together to accomplish peace. We can pray that the peace that he accomplished between us will be manifested in, in our actions, in our deeds, that we would love other Christians as brothers and sisters regardless if they're in a different background or denomination. But there's, there's, still, there's still division, though, right? We still live in this, in this time where things have changed, but we still await a final consummation when a full and final peace would actually be ushered in. David prayed for Jerusalem. So should we pray for the city of Jerusalem, the nation state of Jerusalem? I'm going to have a quick answer and then duck out the door because that is a, uh, a loaded question. <laughs> but um, there's quite a bit of controversy there with Jerusalem. I, I certainly think that we should pray for Jerusalem. Uh, I, I don't think there's any reason not to. Um, we, have, we have lots of places all over the world where there's lots of controversy and other things that go on. And we need to pray for those things to be resolved. And we also need to pray um, for people to come to a saving faith in the gospel. But we shouldn't necessarily apply David's prayer for Jerusalem to us today because the new covenant church is the dwelling place for God, right? God is not contained in the temple anymore. His dwelling place is with man, right? John 1, Jesus came and he dwelt, he tabernacled with his people. So we're to worship and pray in light of the hope that we have in a final peace for the new Jerusalem that's going to arrive. The biblical definition that we have of hope is based on an outcome that is certain, and we can eagerly await the coming of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 2 through 3, it's in the, it's in the front of your bulletin. The holy city, new Jerusalem, was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, who's John, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So when Christ ushers in his new kingdom, there will be a full and final peace. That was the hope that David longed for. That is the hope that we long for. So when we come and worship, we can worship in light of the hope that we have that Christ is building his kingdom and that one day we will be with him in that new Jerusalem where there will be no, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death, no more mourning. That's a certain hope that we can give praise to God for as pilgrims on our journey. So as we travel on our pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem, may our lives reflect a life Lift, lived upward towards God. May we ascend the hill towards the promised land by developing a spiritual maturity rooted in giving God the worship and praise that he is worthy of. Heavenly Father, uh, we uh, thank you so much uh, for our time to come before you, to hear from your word. Uh, God, we, we thank you so much for your faithfulness throughout all the generations that you were faithful 
um, to give your people the promised land. And Lord, that you were faithful to send a Savior who opened a way, who opened the door for us to be able to enter into your presence, to no longer have the hostility and the enmity with you and with each other. God, may our affections help us in our day-to-day lives to be directed towards you in worship. Give us an eager expectation to come before your presence on Sundays, to worship and praise you, to thank you for what you've done. Help us to remember all of the ways you've worked in our lives. Lord, may our worship today, as always, be ever-pleasing and honoring to you in your sight. In Christ's holy name.